Each month, this podcast will be a continuation of the conversation started the night before at About Women in Chicago. Last night, we heard stories from four women about their relationships with their mothers, their experiences as daughters, and how these pivotal moments have shaped how they choose to parent. This podcast is a judgment-free place for women to hear different sides of the story. To be clear, we are not anti-men. We are pro-women. It's not about them. It's about us. I'm your host, Nikki Neagle. I'm a female empowerment coach. I help women get their shit together. As always, I have with me my co-host, Carrie Reffitt. I'm a 37-year-old visual storyteller, marketing consultant, and queer woman. I became my mother's protector at a young age as I experienced her turbulent relationships with men. Not talking about abuse and attempted suicide led to years of internalized anger, guilt, and apathy. Thankfully, over the last two years, we have developed a more open and authentic relationship. And my other co-host, Danielle Holtz. I'm a 30-year-old theater educator and storyteller. My mother and I were best friends throughout childhood. She committed suicide when I was 17, and I still find myself navigating my relationship with her. And today we have with us three fantastic women. Julie Roberts. I'm a 51-year-old married and child-free advertising consultant. My mother had borderline personality disorder. It was a decades-long roller coaster ride, ending with me taking care of her through her final years and subsequent passing. Carolyn McCormick. I'm a 35-year-old fundraiser and mother of a six-year-old daughter. I'm one of five daughters and not my mother's favorite. And Christina Kolsky. I'm a 37-year-old nurturer and school social worker. I had a tumultuous and transformative relationship that changed us both. My mother passed away five years ago. Keep in mind, our events and podcasts are a safe place to share openly and honestly about our experiences. I'm 40 years old, and for the most part, I have a great relationship with my mother. She has always been there to support me and my dreams. She lives in Oshkosh, Wisconsin. I haven't lived there in almost 18 years, but we've always talked and checked in with each other. Now, let's get this conversation started. When did you first realize your mother was a real woman with a past? I was in a part of my family's basement, which we call the basementy basement. No one went in too much, and it was a storage place. And I found an old book that had a man's name in it that I didn't recognize. And when I went and asked who that man was, I was told that was my mom's first husband and my oldest sister's father. I think I was about eight years old, and before then I didn't know anything about that situation. I remembered kind of thinking that it was special that I had um, three and a half sisters instead of four, like I had thought before. (laughs) Um, My oldest sister was my favorite, so it didn't change sort of any way I felt about the situation, Um, but I thought it was just very, I remember thinking it was very interesting and kind of fascinating and a little bit, I don't know, mysterious or scandalous or something. So you were eight years old, Carolyn, when you discovered your mom had a past. Did that change the way you talked to her, do you think, over time? I think when I got to be a little bit older and in my teens and started learning a little bit more about that relationship, when I started sort of doing the math and figuring out how young my mother was the first time that she was married and had a child, then it sort of started to fill in some of the pieces and sort of help make sense of 
um, who my mother was as a person and how I perceived her as a person. That, you know, she didn't have the opportunity for education that she had wanted. That, you know, she was married with a child very, very young. And sort of how that influenced her decisions and behavior. Julie, what about you? Um, you know, I don't know how much people know about borderline personality disorder, but probably the easiest way I can put it is, it's not my favorite way to put it, but it's Joan Crawford. Growing up as a child of a borderline personality uh, disorder mother, you always knew she had a past because she always let you know about it. Mm-hmm. When you started to date, she would tell you all her terrible experiences, everything that happened to her. It's somewhere in between, I want to help you with this, or poor me, I this happened to me, or this happened to me. Once I started getting into my teen years, stuff that she would just go crazy that I would do. And I thought it was very normal teenage stuff. She just had this different way of looking at the world and reacting. So I always knew she had a past. Plus I had an older brother, he's 11 years older than I am. I knew my, she was married before, my dad was married before, so we had a little years, mine and ours family going on. Christine, what about you? I was probably maybe about 13 and I was helping my mom at one of her workshops and she came out in the middle of the workshop and started to talk about her sexual abuse. She was sexually abused by her father and I didn't know about that. It was very emotional because I like fumbled out of my chair and ran out the room. How could I have not known this? And my grandfather passed away when she was maybe 14. And uh, I apologize to anyone listening, my relatives who didn't know about this, but it was very much a significant event that I think made my mom who she was. Your decision to pursue counseling, is that at all impacted by your mother? Oh, I, definitely. I, I'm the daughter of a, my father's an MSW as well, so he's a social worker. He works in substance abuse and now works as outpatient uh, mental health. But my mother, yeah, she was very much like a social worker at heart, not by training. She was a nurse by training, but she you know, went out and basically helped people a lot. We had people coming in and out of our home often, like staying with us. We had gangbangers living with us when I was a teenager um, because that's very much who she was. And I think she struggled with, because of the abuse, she struggled with a lot of mental health issues as well. And Mm -hmm. we both suffered from depression. She did everything for me to get me help and find me the best doctors and get me the best programs. She didn't do that for herself. And I think that was one of the things that she struggled with. So as a result, she would go about, she was very much a nurturer, just out to help as many people as possible. You said something that really struck me, this idea that your mom had all these needs that she didn't attend to because she was so busy taking care of you. And I'm wondering if other women in the room have had that experience where you can see your mom making sacrifices in different aspects of her life because she's giving so much of herself to you. My mother would tell you that she was making sacrifices for you, but it was pretty much standard operating procedure. She was a great mom. I don't want to diminish her motherhood or her parenting. She was a great mom until my dad died and I was 33 years old. And then it came out because when you're a borderline, you act out on the person closest to you, which was my father. And your parents were married all the way? They were married all the way until my dad died. So they were married 35 years. My mother was also a sexual abuse survivor via her brother, and if you do any research into borderline, which I've done way too much, I know way too much about it, many of the women were sexually abused. My mom was 18 when they got married and 20 when she had me, and she did completely devote herself to my brother and I, and all of my family members have really strong memories of her just sort of like throwing herself into motherhood. That was like her identity for my entire life. 
But I have these really specific memories. We did Weight Watchers together when I was like 13. And she lost 40 pounds and was feeling really good about her body for the first time in her life. And I remember going with her to Kmart because she would only felt comfortable buying new clothes from her for herself if they were from Kmart, so it wasn't a big expense. And I remember watching her try on like $9 dresses and trying to feel really confident in this new body that she'd worked so hard for, mm-hmm. but she didn't want to spend money on the clothing because she still was like, well, our money's for our family, it's not about me. I watched her go through this conflict of like trying to own this new body that she had, but then still being really aware of, you know, well, we only have X amount of money to spend. And I don't even know necessarily, you know, where our family's finances were at the time. I'm sure if she wanted to upgrade to Target, it probably would have been fine. Um, You know, but she wore these, like, she had like four, like, thin dresses that she would wear all summer. And that was it. Those were the outfits that she had that were her new, it was her new wardrobe. I think I got the message from my mom that self-sacrifice is what we do as women. She very much taught me and my brother very different skills. God love her. I think she raised us amazingly well um, and how we've turned out. But I think she taught my brother that he was allowed to be his own person and he was allowed to shoot for the stars and he was the dreamer, the one who was going to. She, As she called it, she said, everyone will know your name to my brother. But to me, she took me around and we would basically clean out homes when people had passed away. She taught me how to, you know, do things like make mass booklets for, you know, different like self-sacrificing things to help others. So, you know, to this day, I'm the one who knows how to kind of clean out the house, how to, you know, take care of others' needs. And that was a very different message, how she brought me up to be that kind of like self-sacrificing person. Like her needs were not as important as her husband's needs, as important as her children's needs. So Caroline, I want to ask you, because you in this room have a daughter. Yes. And so do you find that you sacrifice more for your daughter instead of for yourself? Certainly in terms of time and energy, yes. Um, It's incredibly hard, I think, to have a kid today, and especially a kid who's more high needs today, and not spend that time and energy, in addition to the fact that I'm working full time. If I was not working mm-hmm. full-time, I think it would be different just because there would be more time available. But there was one point where I was, you know, and, and lucky to work for a place where I had time off and was able to FMLA mm-hmm. because she had a psychologist once a week, speech therapy twice a week, occupational therapy once a week, and then just those other things that we thought would be beneficial, like for a while it was horseback riding or gymnastics. She's in CrossFit. So just all of these different things that we're doing to sort of help her, but they do take time. Um, And my husband works a lot more hours than I do, so I'm the one who's doing the the time and energy expenditure. I also am lucky, I think, or to be parenting now in a time where when I've had my own issues with anxiety and depression, now doctors look at it as almost a two-for-one because they know that the mental health of the mother so impacts Mm -hmm. the child that they're much more aggressive with treating the mother, knowing that they're also, in a sense, treating the child. So you're talking a lot about your daughter, and I was wondering if you could describe to us a little bit about her background and when you discovered um, her illness. 
Sure. So I had a really um, difficult pregnancy, especially at the end. I was very, very sick with a pregnancy-related illness. I lost my vision for months. Um, I was in the ICU for just about a day. My blood pressure was 180 over 140, which when I tell medical people that, they all kind of get this look on their faces. And that was after a a ton of, of drugs. So we had this very, very rough start. She was very tiny. She was a little under five pounds, which for 36 weeks was was small. From the beginning, we were very much together because I was still on bed rest. My husband was back at work the next day. I was alone with this premature infant. We weren't supposed to have visitors. I was couldn't really see, couldn't drive, but I was alone with her. I remember being terrified I couldn't give her a bath because they had kept saying, you know, you're still at risk of heart attack, you're still at risk of stroke. And I would think, well, if she's having a bath and I have a stroke, that's it, she'll drown. So all that's to say, we got off to a very rough start, and I was having a tremendous amount of anxiety, depression that went undiagnosed for about three years. By the time, you know, she was really just a few months old, she was having more separation anxiety. When she got past the point where separation anxiety is supposed to sort of abate, which I think is around 18 months, but don't quote me on that, you know, hers was still going really strong. So she hit two years old and then two and a half. And finally, by the time she was three is when they said, okay, this is clearly sort of beyond our range of normal, where she should be able to sort of separate from a parent without it being just the end of the world and crying and screaming and two hours of crying before she went to daycare every day and then crying for half an hour every day afterwards and not wanting to be sort of more than 50 feet away from me. Um, so that's when they I got a referral to a developmental pediatrician and occupational therapy and, and the rest of that. What did that do to you as a mother emotionally to watch your daughter struggle? It's very difficult and I had anxiety starting when I was in my late teens, like right when I went into college. So I was very prepared for the idea that she might have it someday, mm-hmm. but I had it in my head that I was going to start watching around, you know, age 15. So, because that's when I had displayed it, that's, you know, you kind of hear about mental illness, you know, it happens kind of in those ages. So I was extremely unprepared to have it happen at such a young age. And then it's very hard. Parenting is competitive and full of judgments to begin with. So when you have a child who's sort of not performing the way other children are, it's sort of people love to just rush right in with their opinions Mm. and their advice which is oftentimes meant very well, but often doesn't really, (laughs) doesn't help much. Going into a situation where you're taking your child into therapy, they are scrutinizing your parenting so much, Mm -hmm. your home life so much. And to be willing to be open to that and to sort of expose your flaws when it comes to that, you know, and say, yes, I have yelled at my child. Yes, I have sworn at my four-year-old. It's hard. It's, It's a very vulnerable position. You said something, Carolyn, that really struck a note with me, which is that parents can be very competitive. And I'm wondering if anybody else has distinct memories of your mother competing with another mother. Because (laughs) I sure do. And it just, I thought, wow, is this where we learn it? It's hard. It is very um, judgmental, especially where I live, which is kind of a very conservative Republican suburb of Chicago. I'm really not in step with a lot of my neighbors and how they think about things and how they feel about things. So it's it's hard, and I, I try and just sort of not participate in the conversation as much. Um, but when people find out that, you know, I don't enforce homework for my kindergartner every day, like the school says we're supposed to, 
um, because right now with all the anxiety and everything else she's dealing with, in my mind, unless we get that under control, there's no way she's going to perform well in school, or if she does, it's going to be erratic at best. So we're focusing our energies there, and I've had other parents say things to me like, well, aren't you worried that she's not going to get ahead in kindergarten? And in my mind, I'm thinking, ahead of who? <laughs> ahead of your five-year-old? Um, but it's very different, and I don't know if it's the school I'm at, and maybe our other two educators here, Danielle and Christina, know a bit better, um, but you know, they have them writing paragraphs in kindergarten. It's, it's much different than when I was a kid. They're expected to be reading fluently. So there is difficulties there, and then difficulties just in terms of what you're perceived to be providing for your children and how you're sort of perceived as preparing them for the most success. If I, God forbid, mention to anyone in my neighborhood that if my daughter chooses not to go to college, then that's a decision that I would accept. Just the looks of shock and horror are yeah, impressive. My parents weren't competitive with anybody, but I can tell you, <laughs> this is the borderline thing about uh, the disease, People are in your life, and then all of a sudden they do something that you perceive, it's always perceived with borderlines. Maybe you did nothing to them. Maybe you just, you weren't looking happy as you walked out of the room. Oh, she doesn't like me. I'm not going to be her friend anymore. Yep. You have friends cut out of your life. Now, my personal friends, their friends, uh, relatives, there'd be aunts she'd stop talking to, cousins she'd stop talking to. My cousin and I would laugh because we'd go to a party and go, who are we not supposed to talk to? Yeah. <laughs> you know, when I was getting married, I mean, even when my, I've been married before, but when I got married this time, she was like, well, you know, don't invite so-and-so or I'm not coming. Wow. Fine, stay home. I'm 33 mm -hmm. years old. I want to touch on the, the competitive component in this conversation. I am not in any way, shape, or form competitive at all. I am not competitive with other women. I'm not competitive with other men. And to that, I'm not competitive with myself. Like I used to be a runner and I used to do races. I never compared my race time from last year to this year if I ran the same race. I don't care. My husband and I will play Connect Four and I will win every time. And I don't care that I win. And mm. he is very competitive. <laughs> And he gets upset that he loses, and he gets upset that I win, and I don't care. So <laughs> I am not competitive at all. And then when I look at my mother, and I think about my mother, and my mother is not competitive. At mm -hmm. least I, she does, I do not perceive my mother as being competitive, and so I can't help but wonder if I'm not competitive because my mother wasn't. And I don't think my dad is either. I think there's like a healthy level of competitiveness. Like, I was very much raised in a competitive family I would say like my mother I would say the most I saw it was with her sisters we were a reflection of whether she was a good person and a good parent so if we went to the best schools or we got straight A's that was a reflection on her that she was a mm -hmm. good parent and I think that's how she perceived it though she would she would always say it's about us she wants us to be successful so we were very competitive but I also feel we were very driven in that way so because she kind of would play me and my brother against each other we she also raised us to have a very positive relationship of competitiveness my drive I don't know if I've ever had it um, I, if I do I had to kind of find it from within like I went to college you know when I was 18 and then I dropped out at 20 and it was never, there was never any question of, 
oh, well, okay, well, now what? You know, it was mm-hmm. like, okay, you're going to work, but no one cared that I was no longer in school. Mm-hmm. Whereas some parents mm-hmm. might say, what are you going to do with your life? Or it was just like, okay, so now I just take the next step. And so sometimes I get nervous about the fact that I'm not competitive, so I'm also... I'm not driven sometimes. Mm -hmm. I mean, I could lay on the couch all day and watch TV and be okay with it sometimes. And so I worry that because I don't have any competitiveness inside of me, that there's not a lot of drive. And I I have to, sometimes I have to struggle with finding my drive. I have to actively work against my competitiveness. I have to Mm. actively work against it because it will just derail me. Yeah. Um, and I'll get so worried about what other people have and what I don't have and making comparisons. I realized that this was a problem maybe four years ago. I've been actively questioning my motives. Do you actually want a condo or do you want people to be able to see that you have a condo? Yeah. Do you actually yeah. want yeah. a child or do you want people to be able to see that you have a child? Right. Like, do you have to post on Facebook that you had a really lovely anniversary dinner? Or is it, can it just be enough that it was a really <laughs> lovely night? Like, yeah. I have to, I question my motives a lot of the time. Yeah. And <clears throat> I think part of it is that I watched my mom be very concerned with what people thought. She also got married young. She wanted to go to school. They told her she couldn't go for performing theater, that she had to go for something that was more realistic, so she did hairstyling. She had to build her life fast, and she had to prove that the decisions she made weren't mistakes. All the money was about that they were making, building their own businesses, and struggling for years. Everything was from my, um, for me and my brother, every decision she made. And she was like our strongest advocates, like always, always, always. I don't remember why I got up. <laughs> was it about competition? Yeah, competition? But so anyway, yes, I don't think that her competition came from a negative place. I don't think right. it came from a spurnful place or a place where she felt like, oh, I don't know that it was society. I think for her, she felt like she had a lot to prove to her older brothers and sisters. And she mm-hmm. had a lot working against her because she had an undiagnosed mental illness. I'm going to do address something on the competition. My mother's competition was me. Yeah. Um, yeah. Was me. Um, it could be stuff that was subtle, like she tried to integrate with my friends. And my mother and I were 36 years apart. It's not really easy when your daughter is 16 and you're trying to integrate with 16 year olds or 18 year olds or 21 year olds. Not in a flirtatious way, but she wanted to be one of the, one of the girls, you know. Mm-hmm. She wanted to be my friend and we just didn't make great friends. She came to my 40th birthday party with another friend, you know, with, with a friend of hers who was probably my age, maybe a little bit older, and it always felt like, wow, if I'm not doing what you like, you're going to replace me. Can you talk about the, the workshops that you do with your mother? Sure, so when, it was probably not until our late 20s, I finished my MSW, she was doing parenting workshops, and she was in the schools, and I was in the schools, and she would kind of say, hey, can you look at this? She'd say, Mija, you're the expert. Will you look at this for me? I would look at things and I'm like, okay, mom, let's try to tweak this and try to, you know, tweak that. She was very insecure because she didn't have a college education. She would throw that and she'd say, well, I'm not college educated the way you are and the way your father is. So I would help her with her workshops and things like that. And then slowly she's like, how would you feel about helping me present this? And so we would present parenting workshops from both sides of things. So I would give kind of the daughter or child perspective and she would give the mother perspective and we would talk about what made our relationship work, what didn't make it work, and kind of 
how to engage in a positive relationship, you know, with your parents, with, with, you know, mother and daughter. One of the things she would talk about is communication being key and how you communicate. Um, and we would have little signals like, um, when I was a child and I was dealing with depression, she would say, okay, we're going to go to this family event and I'm going to kind of wink at you to make sure you're okay at any point in time. And I want you to wink back at me. And if you don't wink back, then I know we need to check in and something's not okay. So we would be at gatherings and she'd kind of wink and I'd wink back. And she knew if I didn't wink back that we would go and we would talk and see what was going on. Different things like that. And then eventually we ended up doing like a mother-daughter workshop to think about how we had once were at a point where we fought so adamantly, almost violently. I wouldn't say, I wouldn't, we were never physically violent with each other, but it was just such a volatile relationship. And then to get to a point where we were able to teach workshops about this relationship and this dynamic was um, an amazing transformation that occurred. What did you fight about? So I have a story. I was not I was not a good child. Let's put it that way. Again, dealing with depression. One time I was a teenager and I called my mother a bitch. I just straight out yelled it at her, bitch. First last time I ever did, she as I stormed up to my room, she grabbed me by my ear, pulling me down the stairs and slapped me. <laughs> Only time my mother ever hit me. And I was like, "Oh, I Guess I pissed her off. <laughs> and that was it. End of discussion. We didn't talk about it. I never said it again. Did you know it was going to have that reaction? Did you know calling your mother a bitch was going to be a bad thing? Did you, were you intentionally making her angry? I was, intent I was intentionally making her angry, yes. Um, but I didn't think she was going to do that. It was one of those things where you, I didn't see my mom mad. I didn't mm -hmm. see her show emotion. She hid that. The fact that she was so upset. Just like, oh my gosh. <laughs> I didn't know I could take her off. Do you feel like you struck a nerve or do you feel like it was just a disrespect? It was a, it was a disrespect. And later years, she would claim the word bitch in a heroic way. Reclaim it like, I'm a bitch, you know. And she would say, she would call it her Beulah coming out. That when she was being bitchy to someone, it was this woman named Beulah that came out of her. <laughs> it was just one of those, she's like, don't make my Beulah come out now. <laughs> and it was her way of reclaiming it. Because at, at that time when I said it, that was, yeah, it had struck a nerve, you know? No one called her that. So I wanted to talk a little bit about how relationships with parents evolve even after they have passed away and I heard this a lot right after my mom passed away where people would say don't don't let her death define who she becomes to you don't Ooh. you know don't let that moment be the only thing you remember about her mm. and I remember hearing that and thinking I'm, I won't do that like it the death is the hardest part like why would I focus on that but then there was a really long period of my life where most of my relationship with my mom was like caught up in remembering when she died and mm -hmm. everything that surrounded the time right before she died and right after she died and just grief and shame and guilt. And now, 12 years out from her passing, two years ago, I threw a dance party on the anniversary of her death and said, um, you know, we're going to celebrate her life and we're going to remember her and like this is just a really positive thing and this is music that she loved. And even now thinking about it, just having to think about what music did she listen to, what do I remember, was like a way to start kind of connecting with her and like mm -hmm. moving past the like time period where she was sick to where she died. 
And then slowly I've started to kind of realize that a lot of why it's so hard for me to remember who she was is because we have a lot of the same interests, a lot of the same behaviors, a lot of the same identifiers. And I think that it's really hard for me to compare myself to her because I don't want other people to think that because I'm like her, I'm going to kill myself, wow. you know? And I, and like, that's really hard to say, but that is a big, you know, the more mm-hmm. people think that I am like her, the more that they're probably thinking that I'm going to kill myself or they're going to worry that that's going to happen to me. But all that said, so my relationship with her is a work in progress. It hasn't stopped. Mm-hmm. And I think when yeah. she died, I just assumed that I only got 17 years with her and that's it. And now I'm finding that I have to like work on our relationship. (laughs) Um, I'm like, if I want to, but it almost feels like I have to work on it if I want to get to a place of of peace and Mm -hmm. mental health. I'm like, this is my experience, sure, but I've just, I don't know if other women are working on the relationships with people who are dead, like, and how that, how that's been for you. And well, for me, I was um, the executive of my mother's estate. So that was a huge responsibility. And even though I was the youngest, my brother lives in L.A., so she left that to me. And I think she knew I would be better at that <laughs> um, in terms of how, how to do that. But I would say, yeah, our relationship is still present. It's still evolving. I can still kind of hear her voice in little moments. Things will say or things will happen, and I'll be like, oh, there's mom. <laughs> um, or I'll even just have like a big decision to make and I'll kind of meditate on it and I'll hear what she would want me to do um but it was very hard when I bring up the executor I feel like her death was peaceful there was a lot of reconciliation in her death and I felt at peace with it even though she was 62 when she passed and she was at peace with it so for me the death wasn't the hard part for me it was everything that happened after and not even the emotion, like you're dealing with the emotion of grief and loss, and but you're also dealing with the business of death. And that for me was hard. So that year um, that she passed, I moved into her home to live there to basically clean it out. That was a very emotional, physically exhausting process. But in that process, I became you know closer to her and learned more about her and her death than I ever had. In many ways, would grow closer to her. She'd always wanted to go skydiving. And she, when, when she was sick, she's like, I want to go skydiving. I want to go skydiving. And she never got a chance to do that. So the year after she died, me and my brother went skydiving and took her ashes and oh, let them go. I love that. Oh, I just got chills. I yes. just... It was beautiful. It really... And we have pictures and videos of us letting the ashes go. And oh. so in a way, she... I would never... Never have gone skydiving. <laughs> Never in my life. And now I've gone like three times since wow. then. And I love it. I love it. It's one of those wow. experiences that she gave to me as a gift. Uh-huh. You know. And it was a gift I gave back to her that this was what she wanted. That's really cool. That's why I, you know, said that this relationship is transforming for me. And it can constantly changes me and pushes me to make peace with it and, and everything. And now it's like I... I go to family gatherings. I was just at a family gathering yesterday where my aunts are, and they look like it's eerie. I look at them, and I see my mother's eyes, and it's so eerie for me that she's still living among us, and she's still within us. I completely agree with you. The death didn't end anything.
we've been talking about emotions and I remember a time when I was I think I was like three or four and my mom had lost her job I just remember she had picked me up from wherever and we're driving and she just broke down and started bawling and crying mm-hmm. and I was like what is wrong she said I got fired I didn't know what that meant I was like you're on mm-hmm. fire I don't understand I don't understand what's on fire and then she uh, three or four okay so then as she tried to explain that she lost her job, she no longer has this job. And then once I got that, I remember comforting her and hugging her and was telling her it was going to be okay. And my therapist says that's the moment that I then took on this role of being her comforter and being this mm-hmm. adult kind of person to her of let me take care of you and let me protect you and yada, yada, yada. Interesting. Here, so, looking, I just want to stop you yeah. for a second. Looking back on that, do you think she should have told you that she lost her job when you were only three years old? Yeah, that was, that was, that, this is my question to the group because I've often thought about that. I'm like, what if that moment wouldn't have happened or what if I would have reacted in a different way? Like, I don't, I guess innately that was my response to her at that age. And I'm curious if there were moments where your mom showed emotion, like too much emotion. There's this weird balance of emotion and vulnerability, especially with the parental role of how much is okay and how much is not okay. And so I'm just curious what your experiences are. My whole life. So it was just rage and happy, rage and happy. You kind of get used to it. I mean, I hate to say you kind of got used to it, but you had no choice. You couldn't leave home at 10. Yeah. And like I said, I had a great dad. I had a very constant dad. I think living with someone like that, and I'm pretty sure most of you have seen Mommy Dearest. Mm-hmm. Okay. You remember the scene where she goes in the closet, pulls all her clothes off the hanger, and throws mm-hmm. it in the floor? That happened to me. That was, like, not a funny movie for me because I didn't put something away properly. So my mother went in my closet and said, you have all these nice things your dad and I get you, and you can't take care of your closet. It was really simple. I remember seeing the movie the first time and going, stop. This is not funny. I didn't have to scrub the floor with Comet, but she pulled all my clothes off the hanger, threw them in the middle of the floor, and said, now put them back the right way. Of course, I'm an adult when I see this, and I'm going, this, this is someone else. Someone else lived this dream. Do you think, this is such a hard question, but it's part of what Carrie asked. If you hadn't seen so many range of emotions, what do you think about you would be different? That's such a hard question. I think, honestly, all of that took me, you know, 40 some years, made me stronger and better and tougher mm-hmm. and yet more empathetic. Like, I really love seniors. Why? Because I go visit the really nice ones with my dog in a nursing home, and I go, oh, this is what it was supposed to be like with an older lady. It's, I, I think it all made me a better person. It just took me a really long time to, to wrap my head around it, to get help. I went to a therapist, and they said, you cannot change her. You never will. How are you going to change your reaction to her? Mm-hmm. So when she got too much, I would stop talking to her, sometimes for six months at a time. I knew she was okay. She lived in my neighborhood. I could do a drive-by. And once something went wrong, she would call because she had to reach out for help. But it never made me, until she was old, made me want to necessarily save her, take care of her. It's like, hmm, you've been, a, you've been a tough girl all this time. Come on, keep going because I know you're okay. I know you love your mother. I did. I, lo- I did, did love her. Was there a part of you when she died that there was a bit of relief, oh that there was a bit God. of, 
Mm. Oh, thank goodness. Oh. I, I love her, but I'm glad this is done. Actually, when she went from assisted living, <laughs> long story short, my mother was 80 years old, decided to pack up her condo and move to Florida and didn't tell anybody. Wow. Okay, so, I mean, that's kind of cool if you think about it. This is this old spunky lady who said, I'm tired of everything, and I'm packing up, and I'm moving to Florida. Did it on her own. Didn't Did drive she... a car, didn't play golf. None of this just decided to do Did it. Did she have a plan when she moved to Florida? Uh, was she... She had a friend that had a condo in this development, and so she had somewhat of a plan. Then she got worse, she broke her hips, we had to come down and, and bring her back. How long was she down in Florida for? Uh, two or three years. Two or three years. My brother didn't want to help. I went down, I took care of the condo, which was sort of in this very, the state that you never want to see your mother's condo in because I'm 82 and I can't do it, and I fired every cleaning lady because they pissed me off, you know, that volatile <laughs> relationship. And we brought her back. She went into assisted, and in assisted, they helped me as much as a therapist did because when she would push my buttons as an 83-year-old woman in a wheelchair, and i go, Mom, and they go, here's your car keys. Nice seeing you today, Mrs. Roberts. Goodbye now. Because they taught me, look, you can't change this. Mm -hmm. You need to remove yourself from it, go home, have a glass of wine, talk to your husband, walk the dog, whatever you need to do. My first sense of relief came when she had to go into skilled nursing. She had dementia. She softened. She wasn't this competitive person anymore because I feel like that part of her brain, that part of her consciousness was sort of gone. So she's one of the few old ladies in, in the dementia ward of the nursing home that was like, it was pleasurable. And I would come to see her at least once or twice a week, and the nurses and the assistants would say, you're one of the few. And I said, it's my mother. Mm -hmm. At the end of the day, it's still your mother. You get one. You get one. And then when she passed, it was an enormous sense of relief. I didn't have to fight anymore. I didn't have to be taking care of two people. I mean, we, we don't have children, so I didn't have the component. I didn't have to do that. And you know what? She was at peace. And she would have been really proud. And all in retrospect, what doesn't kill us makes us stronger and better. I really, really believe that. Oh, she still gets me after 51 years. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I listened to all of your stories, and, and I don't want to use the word normal but I don't know what other word to use because that's the word that we have in our language. But for the most part, I had a very normal childhood. And I remember watching Mommy Dearest when I was a kid. It was always on TV. First of all, I didn't know it was about a real person. I remember being fascinated by this movie. I couldn't believe that that actually happened. And so it, it wasn't until I think I was an adult that I learned that it was a, a true story. And I look back on now watching it as a child and being... Like, just thinking, like, oh, well, that's just, that's funny. Like, that's crazy. Because who acts like that? Because I didn't have anyone in my life that acted even closely. It, like, it kind of shocks me when I think about it that I watched that movie in awe, but also in a, oh, that's not real. That's a movie. When I wonder, too, and this is a terribly personal question to ask you, and if you don't want to answer, that's fine, um, but... Did that experience influence your choice to have children? Because I know that I was terrified mm. having you know, the experiences that I grew up with and knowing how many of these things repeat themselves. Yeah. I was terrified of having a children child, and I still am terrified <laughs> of like, you know, I think that's, I see so many therapists because sure. I'm always asking, I, I ask the question, how much emotion should I show? 
should I cry mm-hmm. in front of my cat? Right. Should I get mad? Or is that something that I want to keep to myself? It didn't. Actually, my husband and I tried. We lost a couple of times. Oh, sorry. But it, thank you. Um, I, I think it was after we lost the second time, and I went back to the doctor, and she said, oh, do you want to go on fertility drugs and this and that and the other thing? And I said, you know what? Let me think about it. So Noah and I were coming, we decided to go to Cleveland to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame for Thanksgiving so we wouldn't have to be like in a room full of relatives and their toddlers because I wasn't, I wasn't there yet. And we're driving back and he goes, are you thinking about this? And I said, I, I am. And I said, oh, you know, and he's like, all right, I'm, I'm patient. I'm here. I turned 15 January, whatever. And there's this station wagon pulls up and it's full of kids and the mother is screaming and yelling and I go, I made a decision. <laughs> That's funny. And he's like, based on that? He's like a bunch of crazy people in a station wagon? And I'm like, you know what? I'm good. You know, if I, maybe I just need to be somebody's aunt or, or help someone's friend's daughter. I said, I'm really, I'm, I'm good with this. I think we would have been awesome parents. My mother-in-law will say, she's like, you two would have been the best parents on earth, but you're really good non-parents. You're really good non-parents. Well, there's so many ways to parent, like you said. You don't actually have to be a parent. Right. To be. Neither my husband and I are big sort of demonstrative displays of emotion. Um, but I will confess to you, and it is a confession, because I think it's the, the first thing that my daughter will probably tell her therapist. Um, <laughs> so we went through... <laughs> Let's let's not. Oh, I guess I'm the only mom here, so I can't even say. Oh, that wasn't me. That was someone else at the table. Um, <laughs> so we went through a period early this year of school refusal, where the kid was refusing to go to school, and by then she'd already missed school because of occupational therapy and her standard illnesses. So um, we had already gotten one of the your kid has missed so much school, we're going to report you, and blah, blah, blah. So she, in the midst of all this, starts just flat out refusing to go to school. Would go to her, she goes to two schools every day, because we don't have full-day kindergarten. She'd go to the first school, and I promise you, my husband came up with this theory, so it's not me being paranoid, but would get herself all worked up, and then have them take her temperature, and they would send her home with like a 99.9 degree fever. We actually had to go get a letter from the doctor saying, if it's not 100.5, you need to stop sending her home because they would send her home, then we couldn't send her to the afternoon care, and we'd have to keep her home the next day. Mm-hmm. So we went through this couple-week period of having this total just disaster around school, and I continue to get the letters about how you know I'm going to get reported to DCFS or whatever it is. Um, and at one point, I just kind of lost it, and I said, you know, this is why school is important. You go to school because you need to get a job. You need to get a job because we have to pay rent, we have to buy our food, we have to blah, blah, blah. And basically, I summed it up as, if you don't stop refusing to go to school, one day you're going to be living under a bridge eating cat food. Is that what you want? <laughs> Love it. Land by the river. <laughs> basically. Oh, no. And then I kind of forgot about it. And then a few weeks later... Um, she actually came up and asked me, she's like, did you ever live under a bridge and eat cat food? <laughs> and I said, no, because I went to college. Um, so like I said, you know, she'll, she'll have some, some good things to tell oh, her therapist. Oh, thank you for the laugh. <laughs> I hope it didn't scare her too much. She didn't seem to be too upset about it, but, um, yes. And eventually you know, walk out with a new If you see her going through the, the cupboard and like trying cat food, then you might be like, oh, we need to talk again about this. Uh, I recommend fancy bees. Yeah. <laughs> That's a little bit better than Christmas. Right. I'm glad you're talking about this because 
you are, you know, the six of us sitting here, you are the only mother in the room. You are a real person, just like all of our mothers are or were, you know, real people. And you mentioned something earlier, Carolyn, that you said, you know, I don't have it all figured out. And I don't think any of us do. And it, we have this impression that someday we will have it all figured out and we won't. And it's impossible. We'll, we'll never have all the answers. We're never going to raise children to be perfect. My mother is certainly not perfect, nor do I think, I don't think she thinks she's perfect, that we all have struggles to deal with and we do the best with the resources that we have. But I'm glad that you brought up that I don't have it all figured out because I think that's important for other women to hear that. I think so. And I think um, I, I think Carrie's heard my speech before about what I call society's narrow view of success, which I think relates to a lot of things, to work, to education, to marriage, to parenting, where it's sort of as a society, we kind of generally have agreed on what this should look like. And if you sort of fall outside of that, if you were very successful, but you didn't finish your college education, like your mother did, that stayed with her forever. Mm -hmm. um, or if you have an open marriage, you know, that's just always a little bit outside the mainstream. It's like this always feeling of, I'm not quite doing it right. I'm not quite doing it the way everyone else is doing. It's scary to be in that place. And it's, it's really scary to be in that place when you have a kid, because you don't want to, you know, your issues to fuck up anyone else either. Um, especially not a kid who you really love, but I think the more we can sort of broaden what success looks like and broaden the definition of successful education, successful parenting, successful relationships, whatever it is, the less we'll all feel that we have to sort of cut off these pieces of ourselves and fit into this very narrow definition. I had always had this cultural narrative around what a mother should be mm -hmm. and, and what she should be to me. I oftentimes didn't feel that I had that. I very much blame, subconsciously blamed my mom sometimes for a lot of things and held a lot of things against her. Even though we had a good relationship, but there was this underlying, um, I'm going to sometimes do subliminal things I know is going to piss you off because you didn't do this for me, whatever, 10 years ago. A couple of years ago, I realized that I was doing that and was like, oh my goodness, this is ridiculous. And we had a great conversation around it, but that's like a huge thing for me now is not to be so narrow in my perspective of this is the cultural narrative of what a mother should be. And I think a lot of us look at our moms as the, these are the ways in which she's fell short. And so I'm going to be pissed at her about this. When we start to realize that we don't have it all figured out. And I start thinking of my mom when, when she was this age and I don't have it figured out now and she didn't have it figured out then, but I expected her to have it figured out. And it just totally shifted the way I think about my mom and relate to her as a human being and a person, not some on a pedestal mother June Cleaver that she should be that she's not and appreciate for her for all the things she did have it figured out and all the great things that she did do. And so, or at least that she tried. That, at least, yeah, mm -hmm. that she tried her absolute best. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I, think, absolutely. I think it gets to a point too, like you can blame your mother or your parents up to a certain point. Yes. But at some point Amen. you have to accept responsibility for the person you are and who you are becoming. Um, and this is a constant struggle I've talked to one of my cousins about because he's still, he's you know 35 and still blames his parents. And it's like, there's a point where it's like, you have to accept responsibility and say, look, I am who I am, and I accept that you did the best you could. Or you find it somewhere else, like Carrie said. Right. I think there's society says that your mother should give you this, your husband should give you this, your job should give you this, and when those things don't sort of match up to the expectation we've been given, 
you know, we do have to make the choice to then find that somewhere else. Exactly. If or that's what's important to us. Or shift your expectations. Yes, mm -hmm. one of the two. Yeah. If there's one thing to take away from this, it's that we are not alone. We spend all this time judging other women's choices when we could be supporting them. So now what? How do we change the way we relate to our mothers? How do we start seeing them as women, just like ourselves, instead of viewing them through this cultural expectation of what a mother should be? How do we build our relationships with our daughters? How do we change what our idea of a successful relationship looks like? We keep the conversation going with friends, with family, with our community. And we want to hear from you. Share with us your stories and experiences about parenthood on our Facebook page. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at I am Nikki Nigo. Follow Danielle at you radiate, the letter U and radiate. And follow Carrie at Cat Pants Media. Thanks, ladies. Are we okay with ruling the world? Yeah.